You're now listening to the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here, we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your hosts, Brandon Hall and Thomas Castelli here. And today we're going to do something a little bit different than we've done in the past. We're going to be breaking down Section 469, the history of Section 469, and why it matters to real estate investors. And this is going to be the first segment, the first episode in a series of episodes where we're going to be breaking down the task code for you. Um, at the end of the day, really what we want to do is we want to set the record straight and demystify some of the complexities of this area of tax code at the same time, taking care of some of the misinformation and misconceptions people have out there on online forums or by CPAs who are not well-versed in this area of the task code. So again, we're gonna break this down for you. We want you to understand why section 469, also known as the passive loss section of the tax code was put into place and how it impacts investors uh, who invest in real estate. Yeah, a little bit of a podcast refresh, right? We've really enjoyed the interviews that we've had with different real estate investors, but we kind of wanted to get back to the basics of what the Real Estate CPA podcast is, and that's breaking down complex tax issues for real estate investors. And uh, who's better to do that than you and I? So, so that's what we're doing here. So the first series is going to be four episodes, and we're going to be focusing on the passive activity loss rules and real estate professional status. There's a lot of misconceptions out there on how real estate professional status works. So we want to set the record straight for you. In the future, we'll be hitting cost segregation. We'll be hitting short-term rentals, entity structuring. There's a lot of fun stuff that we're going to be doing. And if you want us to cover anything, feel free to contact us at contact at therealestatecpa.com and let us know what you'd like us to run a series about, multiple episodes, or join us on our Facebook group, Tax Smart Real Estate Investors. I don't know what the URL is offhand, but if you just go to Tax Smart Real Estate Investors, you'll find it. <laughs> I think it's groups.facebook.com slash Tax Smart Investors. Good. So over the next four episodes, we're going to be hitting why, why the passive activity loss rules are in place, why real estate professional status is important. That's today's episode. Um, our next episode, we're going to be going into the statutory test to qualify as a real estate professional, as well as material participation and what hours count and what hours don't count. And the third episode in this series, we're going to be talking about myths and strategies that you can use as a real estate professional. And the final episode of the series, we're going to be talking about IRS audits, how they audit you, what they step through. That one we'll be telling. That'll be a good one. But today, we're just going to start with why these rules are in place. Take us away. All right. So way back in the day, before I was born, People used to invest in real estate and whether it be direct into rental properties or it be through these funds or these syndicates. And they used to take the losses generated by depreciation directly against their high income, whether it be from a high income W-2 job or business that they owned. You know, particularly this, this group included uh, doctors and physicians uh, was, you know, primar a primary reason also highly paid attorneys. And just other people in these highly paid professions who are taking advantage, I guess, in the view of some people of uh, the depreciation to reduce their tax liability. Because what would happen is you would have 
a large depreciation expense on these assets and it would generate, you know, a massive loss for the most part. And that loss would directly reduce their taxable income. And there was almost no limits on this. And I guess some people viewed this to be unfair and they wanted to do something about it. And that's how Section 469 as part of the Tax Reform Act of 1986 was born. Yeah. So I could be a physician earning a million dollars a year. I can go and, and invest in rental real estate. I don't have to worry about material participation rules or anything because at the time, none of that existed. So I would just go plop money into real estate, generate depreciation, offset my W-2 income of a million dollars or my business income of a million dollars. And I would drop my taxable income down very low, even though it's just a, a, a non-tax or a, a non-cash adjustment. Depreciation is a non-cash adjustment. I'm struggling to say that right now. <laughs> a non-cash adjustment. I don't want that edited out, by the way. I want this to be super clean. Yes. You know? Anyway, the whole point though, is that people were using rental real estate as a tax shelter. So you could invest in rental real estate and use depreciation tricks to drop your income, your taxable income down. And if you've listened to any of our other podcasts or if you've done any reading, you know that depreciation doesn't actually impact how much cash you receive. I can have positive $10,000 of cash flow for my rental property. And I can tell the IRS that I lost $2,000 on that same rental property thanks to depreciation. So $10,000 cold hard cash hits my pocket, but I tell the IRS that I actually lost two. And that is thanks to depreciation. So before 1986, it's a great time to be a landlord. <laughs> you know, you could earn a lot of money and offset all that income with, uh, with investing in rental real estate and using that depreciation. And one thing I just want to jump in there and say another reason why I think people thought it was unfair is because rental real estate, you don't have to really do much. And uh, it was really a passive activity. So, you know, you're off, you know, if you're a doctor, you're, you're in the office, you're a lawyer, you're an attorney, you're doing whatever you're doing in your day-to-day -day life, your active business or job. And that's where you earn the bulk of your money. But then you're buying this rental real estate or investing in a syndicate and not really doing much and then getting these massive losses. And that was a secondary reason why people thought it was unfair um, which is, you know, a big part of Section 469 is material material participation, um, which is something we're going to cover as well. And and just to kind of help you understand why even further, like like kind of the numbers behind it, why Section 469 came into play, the Senate report in 1986 cited a study conducted by the Department of Treasury, which found that taxpayers reporting in excess of two hundred fifty thousand dollars of total receipts, total income. Of them, of those taxpayers, those are high income taxpayers in 1986, right? So, you know, indexing it back with inflation, whatever your 250K salary today, index it back to 1986. It wasn't 250 back then. So, 250 in 1986 was a lot of money. 11% of people that earned over 250K paid less than 5% in taxes, 21% paid less than 10%. So, basically, this study was done to understand how the progressive tax system was either helping or hurting high income earners. And in this case, it was helping them. So in 1986, they add section 469, which says, we're going to create the passive activity rules. We're going to create two buckets of income. You've got passive income and non-passive income. And if it falls in that passive bucket and it creates a loss, you can't claim that loss. So the idea with the 1986 tax changes was to stop people who are simply providing capital 
kind of like what Tom was just talking about, right? If you're not really participating and you're just providing capital, should you really receive such a big tax benefit for just providing capital? And that is what they targeted with Section 469 in the Tax Reform Act of 1986. So Section 469, like I was just saying, it creates two buckets of income. It has the bucket passive income and then also non-passive income. And basically what Section 469 says, it says any trade or business in which you do not materially participate in is passive. And what does that mean? If you invest in a business that's not a C corporation, so you invest in any, any sort of business, you don't make any management decisions, you don't have voting rights, you're not participating in the day-to-day operations, you are passively involved in that business, it is now subject to Section 469. So you're in the past, every dollar that you earn is in that passive bucket. And that's something that a lot of CPAs we've seen uh, struggle with. A lot of real estate investors struggle with it too, because you'll go and you'll you'll invest in uh, in like a mobile home park or something that produces positive income. And then you go and invest in a syndication that produces a passive loss. Well, the mobile home park, if you're not materially participating, it's passive. And the syndication investment is passive. And guess what? You get to net those together. Form 8582. That's where all the netting happens. So you get to net it together. Conversely, if I invest in a business and it's passive, and I don't, I don't materially participate, I don't participate in the day-to-day, I don't have voting rights, I don't participate in management, it's passive. If that business produces positive income, I can offset that positive income with my rental losses because my rental losses are passive too. It's really important to understand for all of our real estate investors out there that it's not about using rental income to offset rental losses. It's about using passive losses to offset passive income. And there's not a difference between a rental passive income and a business passive income. It's just passive income under Section 469. So what I'm trying to say here is your rental losses can offset businesses that you don't materially participate in because it's passive. Yeah, and just to jump in there, just kind of to recap what Brandon just said. So basically, passive losses can offset passive income, but passive losses generally cannot offset non-passive income. And passive losses are generally generated by rental real estate or businesses in which you don't materially participate in. And just to provide you know further clarification on that is when you're investing in either like a limited partnership or an LLC that you don't materially participate in, you generally, you know, if you have a C corporation, you know, like a stock that is considered portfolio income and not passive income, that's uh, another point of confusion, a uh, portfolio income under the tax code, that's stocks, interest, dividends, things of that nature. That is not passive income for the purposes of section 469, even though it is passive maybe in reality, but in the tax code, it is not as two separate buckets. Yeah. Section 469 E1 defines income that's not from a passive activity. So everything you just mentioned, interest, dividends, gain on sale from a capital or or from a stock transaction, guaranteed payments. If you're a partner in a a partnership and you're receiving guaranteed payments, big time for all of our folks that are investing in syndicates, receiving a preferred return on your unreturned capital contribution. That's probably a guaranteed payment. And that's not from a passive activity, even though you're passively involved in the syndication. That's a series for another day. But anyway, the point is, is that Section 469 says any trade or business that you do not materially participate in is passive. Additionally, all rentals by default are passive unless you qualify as a real estate professional. So there's two 
buckets or characterizations, I guess, within section 469. So section 469, again, says any trader business in which you do not materially participate in is passive. Also, all rentals by default are passive unless you qualify as a real estate professional. And that's what this series is all about. That's why it's important to qualify as a real estate professional. Because when you qualify as a real estate professional, you overcome that hurdle that all rentals by default are passive. So you have to qualify as a real estate professional to overcome that hurdle. And then you're just looking at that first rule, any trader business, which I don't materially participate in is passive. So you have to qualify as a real estate professional to overcome the first hurdle. And then you have to materially participate in the rental activity to make your rentals non-passive. And why do we want our rentals to be non-passive? We want our rentals to be non-passive so we can take the losses generated by our rentals against our non-passive income, such as our W-2 income or active business income, if you do have an active business, so we can reduce our tax liability. That is quite powerful for many people because if you know the time value of money, you know if you can reduce your tax liability, take that you know refund or just the money you're not paying the government in taxes and invest it, it can be quite powerful, especially with real estate. And um, we're not going to go into this today, but the power of compound interest, if you use any compound interest calculator, just Google one, you'll see how beneficial it could be. Um, Like just a quick example, because I do know this one off the top of my head. If you were to invest, I think $100,000 over a 10-year period, an 8% return, it's going to compound into $215,000. Now that's that's money you (laughs) would have made. You know that off the top of your head. (laughs) Yeah, I got it. (laughs) It's the power of compound interest. Um, You have to to know it. It keeps me sharp and realizing why you got to put your money into investments. That's a story for another day. Uh, For the purposes of this conversation, though, just know that the money you paid the government or would have paid the government could be reinvested for substantial gains. And that is why this is so powerful. Yeah. And so if you can make your rental losses non-passive, then they can offset your W-2 income, your business income. They can offset the gain on sale of stock, dividends, interest, guaranteed payments, self-employment income, everything, right? That's the whole purpose. It's basically, we want to go back to pre-1986. That's what we want to do. So, So qualifying as a real estate professional... Uh, materially participating in our rental activities takes us back to pre-1986. So we get those rules again. So now I can earn a million dollars and I can use my rental losses to offset my million dollars. That's why it's important to qualify as a real estate professional and materially participate. So again, I'm going to say the rules again. You have a passive activity if you do not materially participate in the business activity and in the business management. You also have a passive activity if you have a rental Because all rentals by default are passive unless you qualify as a real estate professional. So we have to qualify as a real estate professional to overcome that first hurdle. And then we have to materially participate to meet that plain rule that any business that you don't materially participate in is passive. And one more kind of note on this, you know, the Tax Reform Act of 1986 blocked the loophole. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the loophole before 1986 was investing in rental real estate. That was the loophole. Because again, I could be a surgeon earning a million dollars a year in 1986 monies, right? That's, That's a lot of money in 1986. And I can invest in rental real estate, not do anything, do absolutely nothing, and use the depreciation to offset my million dollars of income. That was the loophole. So 1986, Tax Reform Act stopped the loophole. 
And the reason that I say that is real estate professional status is not a loophole. <laughs> okay. That's a legitimate <laughs> section of the tax code. It came in later on, and we'll talk about that probably in the next episode, but it came, it came later on in the tax code, I think in 1994, yeah. as a result of complaints from real estate professionals, uh, people who are actually doing real estate on a full-time basis, they were saying, you know, why is it fair that say if you're a surgeon, for example, and you bought a bunch of surgery equipment or a bunch of medical equipment, you could depreciate that and use your losses and you had a loss in that business. But why, if our core business is real estate, you know, why can't we use our losses to offset our income? And that's how the real estate professional status was born a few years later as a result of, uh, I guess, lobbying probably from the real estate industry as to why that, you know, why that was necessary to put in place. So developers, builders, flippers, they wanted to be able to use the losses from their rental real estate, but real estate professional status did not exist in 1986 when section 469 was implemented. Like Tom said, real estate professional status came into play in 1994. So if you're a developer, if you're full-time in real estate, you're taking the capital that you earn and then you're investing it into rental real estate, you cannot use the rental losses to offset your development income, your building income. But a surgeon who takes their money and invests in surgical equipment, which is kind of the same concept, right? I'm using my capital to invest in something that does not require my management and is going to produce income for me. That's the same sort of logic. The surgeon could use the surgical equipment depreciation to offset the surgical income. So the real estate community was up in arms and there's a lot of lobbying. And then in 1994, real estate professional status was added and real estate professional status was added primarily for people that are full-time in real estate to allow them to use their rental losses to offset their other real estate income. Section 469, the real estate professional status was not added to help the high income earners invest in rental real estate and use rental real estate to offset their income. That's why I say real estate professional status is not the loophole. The loophole was closed in 1986 with the Tax Reform Act by adding Section 469. The loophole was investing in rental real estate to offset my income. And that ended in 1986. The loophole is not qualifying as a real estate professional. And the reason that I harp on that is because real estate professional status is heavily litigated, heavily litigated. And for every tax court case, we probably have 100 audits that nobody sees. So you have to be careful. You have to cross your T's and dot your I's. If there's ever a loophole that's closed, then what comes is tons of litigation. <laughs> so you, if you are going to claim real estate professional status, you just have to be careful. You have to have the right information. You have to act on the right information. You have to take it really seriously. Tom and I can tell you, we've helped with real estate professional audits. People lose all the time because they record the wrong time. They don't have records at all. And they just can't substantiate the fact that they are indeed a real estate professional. No, for sure. For sure. It is very, very misunderstood. It's not easy to necessarily achieve all the time for everybody. And it's something, you know, to Brennan's point, if you are going to do, you want to make sure you're done right. Because if you don't do it right, and you are, God forbid, ever audited or something happens and, and you are, that position is denied for you, it's likely going to result in penalties and back taxes, not to mention just a bunch of hassles and headaches, just having to deal with the audit and having to deal with everything that comes involved with it. So you want to make sure, like Brandon said, you're dotting your T's, crossing your T's <laughs> you and dotting talk. your I's. <laughs> and, that would uh, be a little weird. 
Yeah, yeah. I said yeah. that one time on a presentation. I was like, wait, did I just mess that up? I messed that I up. I think I did too. I think I did too. But it's okay. It's okay. Because if, if it's okay. The point is you want to make sure you're doing the right thing with the real estate professional status because it's not it's not a game and um yep. it is quite powerful. So yeah. So we just went over kind of the brief history of section 469. Definitely not a deep dive, but you can look at the Department of Treasury report that's coming from the Senate finance report that ended up being the 1986 Tax Reform Act. It's got some really interesting information in there. So it kind of tells you like why Section 469 came into play, why they stopped allowing people to just simply apply capital to investments and take losses from them to use as tax shelters. And then real estate professional status came into play in 1994 to give people that were involved in real estate in a heavy capacity full-time, gave them an out. And I think that's it. Do you have anything else that you want to say on this topic? No, no, I don't. Uh, I, I don't have everything. I think we covered it. I think we we did it justice. And now we're gonna, you know, on the next episode for everybody who's tuning in, we're gonna we're gonna talk about how to qualify as a real estate professional. So what the rules are, and we're gonna talk more about material participation. Is that those two topics are you know very hand in hand and often confused in and of, in and of themselves. And so we want to make sure everybody's clarity as to what the rules are and how to qualify. And uh, that's what we're gonna cover in the next episode. Yeah, and, and real quick before we before we bail, I just want to end with the why again, why it's important to understand the rules. Because if you can qualify as a real estate professional, like like think of literally every dollar that you earn goes into one of two buckets. It goes into the passive income bucket or the non-passive income bucket. Every single dollar that you earn goes into one of those two buckets. If it goes into the passive income bucket or the passive loss bucket, it's stuck in that bucket. You can't move it over into the non-passive bucket. So when when we talk about rental losses, you know, if I if I produce ten thousand dollars of loss and it's in the passive bucket and I don't have passive income to offset that loss, that ten thousand dollar loss becomes suspended and it carries forward forever until I die. Um, so so it just it just goes for it just carries forward, carries forward, carries forward it's stuck in that passive loss bucket. So if I can qualify as a real estate professional, and if I can show that I materially participated in the rental activity, then that $10,000 loss will be reclassified and it will move from the passive bucket and into the non-passive bucket. And now I can use that $10,000 loss to offset my other non-passive income, like my W-2 income, my business income, my stock sale. So it's important to understand that Qualifying as a real estate professional and materially participating in your rental real estate activities allows you to reclassify or recharacterize, I should say, the activity from the passive bucket and put it into that non-passive bucket and take the loss. Absolutely. And it has to be in that year that it occurs. You have to be a real estate professional in that year to recategorize the loss. Because like Brand said, once it's suspended, if you become a real estate professional, it does not get automatically recategorized. It's still a passive loss. It's just suspended from a prior year. And I just want to provide one more point of clarification there. While it is suspended and carried forward into the day you die, if you don't use it, you can use those passive losses by either having passive income, like we discussed earlier, either from other rental activities or from other businesses in which you don't materially participate or from gains from those businesses or rental activities. So if you sell rental property, for example, you'll be able to use those losses. I think we'll get more into that in a later episode. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, 
You really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.